God is good and He's given us many gifts, many great gifts, not the least of which is the worship that we can have together to sing these songs and be reminded of the great truths of who God is, that God is good all the time. He's good to us. He loves us. He's for us. He died for us and He's paid our debt. Another wonderful gift He's given us is the gift of fellowship, the gift of being together in the body of Christ, that we are miraculously, when we accept Christ, placed into the body of Christ. We're in a new family with God as our Father. We are His children, and we're part of a group now called the body of Christ, where we are all under our head, Jesus It's a marvelous thing that God has created. Ray Stedman says the body of Christ is the most powerful force on the face of the earth. These people you sit next to, we are told in the scriptures, are saints. Holy ones set apart for the purposes of God. And everyone who has received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the Holy Spirit planted in you to reflect Him, His goodness, His holiness, His greatness. It's a marvelous thing, the body of Christ. But one of the things I've noticed, and I'm sure you have, that when you start rubbing shoulders with other saints, you find out they're not just saints, they're also sinners. That as you get to know people and work at loving them and fellowshipping with them and ministering side by side, you find that they often sin against you. That those other people are selfish sinners, and if our eyes are open to it, so are we. (laughs) That the body of Christ is a place of saints, but it's also a place of sinners, and therefore it's difficult to be in relationship sometimes. We get hurt. We get sinned against. People slander us behind our back. People get angry and selfish and demand things of us that are not right that they should demand. They use us and abuse us in various ways. And therefore, being in fellowship can be a painful thing, a difficult thing to deal with. Because every one of us is a mixture, aren't we? We are a mixture of dignity, being created in God's image and having the Spirit of God in us and being made Christ-like. And on the other hand, depravity, a sinfulness that taints everything we do, which means that in every relationship with someone else, we will experience probably some of both, the Spirit of God in them, and yet the sinfulness that's still there that God is working out as He transforms us as we grow as Christians. But it's not gone yet. So my sin... And your sin affects every relationship we have to some degree. We don't like talking about sin in our day and age, do we? We, We'd rather talk about mistakes or errors or something to that effect. You know, in our politically correct world, we'd probably say, well, we're all just morally challenged, right? (laughs) The truth is we are sinners. And the scriptures define sin as anything that is not done out of love. We can't avoid sin by sitting at home and not having contact with anyone. 
Because that's sinful too. Anything that's not done out of love, out of other-centeredness, out of for the sake of others, is sin, according to the Scriptures. And so that affects everything we do. And it's hard because we come into the body of Christ and we think, these people are born again. They should treat me better than the world out there. And hopefully, mostly they do. But they also sin against you. And in the body of Christ, we rub shoulders a little closer than most people would in the world. And therefore, we feel more of that too, the sinfulness. Sin is destructive in our relationships. It's harmful. It hurts. And I've seen that we as Christians don't, by and large, handle it very well. A couple of responses that are pretty common, and I'm, there's more, but these are some I've seen in myself and others, is when we get sinned against, we withdraw. That's the way they're going to be fine. They can just be that way. Or we get angry and lash out and try to pay them back somehow for what they've done to us. We just don't handle sin very well in the body of Christ, do we? When others sin against us. Well, in the passage today, in Luke chapter 17, and if you'd turn there with me, first 10 verses, Jesus is preparing the disciples for how to handle sin in the body of Christ. How to deal with it when someone sins against you. And this is something we desperately need today if we are to be the forgiven community the body of Christ and the forgiving community in the body of Christ. Let me set the context just a bit. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's just had a run-in with the Pharisees. And in their day and age, first century Palestine, remember what the, what the Pharisees were like. They were the ones who defined what sin was in their day. And sin in their day was well, what the scriptures say, all the rules, plus all the traditions of men that they'd added to it. And their view of sin was, therefore, it's something I will avoid. I will avoid doing anything bad. And if you're doing something bad, I'll make sure I condemn it in you. <laughs> Pharisee, the word Pharisee means separatists, separated one. And their view of sin separated them from everyone else. And they wanted it that way. They wanted to be different because they were avoiding sin. You see, Jesus has a very different view. Yes, we sin against each other, but he wants us to deal with sin in a way that draws us together. So we experience the love and forgiveness of Christ with one another, even though we sin against one another. So in Luke 17, first 10 verses, Jesus teaches his disciples how to deal with it when others sin against you. First principle he gives is in the first two and a half verses. Let me read those. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin or stumbling blocks, maybe in your translation, are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. 
See, our temptation when others sin against us is always to point at the other person how they're blowing it. And Jesus begins, first of all, and says, watch yourselves. You see, the place to deal with sin is always with me first. I must look first to myself. And he says, stumbling blocks, things that cause people to sin, are inevitable. They're bound to come. The word there means unavoidable. In other words, we will sin against each other. We will be stumbling blocks to one another. Somehow we get so surprised in the body of Christ when others hurt us, don't we? Wow, they did this to me. Jesus says, it's inevitable that that will happen. We will sin against one another. I will sin against you and you'll sin against me. It's inevitable that we will influence each other that way. The word stumbling block, literally, in the classical Greek, was a stick that you'd put in a trap to hold it open. It was that, that um, what sprung the trap, so when someone stepped on it, it would snap. And he says, it's inevitable that we will be like that to one another. We will entice one another to sin. We will be stumbling blocks to one another. How do we do that? I think in many ways, but often simply by our, our example. You hurt me, so I withdraw. I've been a stumbling block to you by withdrawing and not reaching out to love you. You see, I've encouraged your sin against me. When I'm resentful, you've hurt me and I'm going to hang on to this. I'm going to pay you back somehow, even if it's just by my silence. I'm being a stumbling block to others, especially my own children and others who see how I respond. Then we're stumbling blocks. When we are selfish and say, I have a right to divorce this person. Yeah, God's not happy about it, I know, but he'll forgive me. We're being stumbling blocks to others. And so in the body of Christ, the general level of morality gets lowered and lowered as we influence one another away from really loving and engaging and learning to care for one another as God has called us to. He says it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone than for him to cause one of these little ones, a little one I think can be children, but also anybody that you have influence over, cause one of these little ones to, to sin. Why does he say that? Those are harsh words. I think he says that is because he knows our tendency is to take sin lightly. And he wants us to know that sin is a serious thing. And when we sin against one another, it is serious. God is a holy, pure, righteous God. And he's offended by our sin. That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross. That's why he suffered a horrible death is because of our sin. Sin is a serious thing. And we, when we sin against one another, it's a serious thing. Jesus begins in teaching us how to deal when others sin against us by saying, look at yourself and make sure you haven't contributed to the problem. Because that's where he wants us to start. He wants us to be far more concerned about our response to others, our sin against others than their sin against us. 
Isn't it easy to get caught up when someone's hurt us in all their sin and what they've done wrong? And Jesus is saying, no, look first to yourself and ask yourself, what have I done that's contributed to this problem? What have I done that's helped lead this person to where they are? What do I need to repent of, to turn from? So Jesus says, always begin with yourself. Look to yourself. Focus there first. Then secondly, second step in dealing with when a brother sins is given in the next part of verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. The word rebuke here, I like, I like to translate it, just tell him to stop. <laughs> if he's caught in a sin, he or she, someone you know, a fellow believer, tell them to stop. That's what rebuke means. Say, don't you understand the harm you're doing to yourself and how offensive this is to God and the body of Christ and that everything you are choosing to do harms me and every other believer. Everything we do affects the body of Christ as a whole. And so to tell them to stop means to be willing to engage with them, to move towards that person who is caught in sin and say, please stop, don't you see what you're doing? One caution, it's so important that if you do that, that you base what you are saying to them, your rebuke, on the Word of God itself. You see, otherwise they can easily dismiss what you're saying. Oh, that's your opinion. Yeah, you're not so perfect yourself, etc. We need to come with a spirit of humility and gentleness and base it on the Word so that the person sees that their issue is not with you, ultimately, but it's with God. We need to be willing to take the risk of moving towards one another in that way, to rebuke, but in a loving, gentle way, to bring the light of the Word into people's lives. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says, Reproof is unavoidable. God's Word demands it, demands it when a brother falls into open sin. The practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest circles where defection from God's word in doctrine or life imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation, the word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It's a ministry of mercy, an ultimate offer of genuine fellowship when we allow nothing but God's word to stand between us. And notice, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. It doesn't say, if your brother sins, call the prayer chain so everybody knows. It doesn't say, tell your neighbor about it while you're trying to work up the courage to go to them. It's between you and your brother or sister in Christ. And therefore, go directly to them. Now, in Matthew 18, we see steps. If they don't ultimately respond, how we are to then take a, a friend with us 
And if they still don't respond, continue to sin, continue to reject God and His truth, then you tell it to the whole body. And, and uh, that's true. Those are steps we need to follow. But we need to remember that it's not up to us to change the other person. You see, I uh, went through a counseling, got a master's in biblical counseling, and I came out of there, you know, armed and dangerous, really, with all the information I had. And I would meet with people, and I would share these wonderful things that were bound to help them in their relationship with the Lord, and a lot of people didn't want to hear it. And I found myself getting impatient and trying to pressure them to accept what I was telling them. And I'm learning as I go how wrong that is. Because it's God who changes people. I'm to lay out the truth and tell the person to stop, but ultimately I have to leave it in God's hand to change their hearts, to deal with them, and bring them under the conviction of the Spirit so they can change. It's not up to me to do that. It's important when you rebuke to remember Galatians 6 that we are to do so in a spirit of gentleness, not in harshness. And there's, of course, much more that could be said, but Jesus says, if you see someone sinning, go to them, take the risk to tell them to stop. So first, look to yourself. Secondly, be willing to rebuke, to move towards them in love. Thirdly, he says, here's how you deal with sin. The last part of verse 3. And if he repents, forgive him. He says, you are to forgive. Now notice here, the forgiveness is tied to repentance. If he f- repents, forgive him. But if you look in other passages, there is no tie like that. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, even the Lord's Prayer. All of these places say, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Period. It doesn't say if he repents or not forgiven. So why does it say it here? Well, I think because in this context, Jesus is so concerned about bringing about reconciliation. And see, forgiveness is something we are to do when others harm us. Every time, whether they repent or not. But reconciliation, a healed relationship, can only happen when there's been repentance. So we need to wrestle with this. What is forgiveness then? What does it really look like to forgive? I think there's a lot of misconceptions out in the Christian community these days. You hear a lot of, forgive and forget. You know, it doesn't matter what they've done. They've abused you. They've hurt you horribly. They've done all these terrible things to you. So you're supposed to forgive and forget, so just act like nothing happened. I think that's wrong. I do not think that's what the scriptures teach. But I do think forgiveness does involve letting go of the debt, being willing to leave it in God's hands. I like what Dan Allender in his book, Bold Love, says. To forgive means to cancel the debt of what is owed in order to provide a door of opportunity for repentance and restoration of the broken relationship. You see, when they've sinned against you, they are indebted to you. And he says, let go of that to open the door to reconciliation. goes on to say, forgiveness involves three things. 
hungering for restoration, revoking revenge, and pursuing goodness. He says, if you've really forgiven, this is what will characterize your heart. A hunger for restoration, a hunger for reconciliation. Now, if they don't repent, that may not be possible. But if you've really forgiven them, then you will desire for the relationship to be healed. You will long for things to be made right, to be able to come back together in loving fellowship. It may not be able to happen if they haven't repented, but you long for that. Forgiveness can never have an attitude of, well, yeah, I forgave her, but if that's the way she wants to be, I'm not going to have anything to do with her anymore. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, oh, how it hurts that the fellowship is broken. I long for it to be restored. And secondly, he says, forgiveness involves revoking revenge. That's letting go of the debt. See, our tendency is always wanting to pay, wanting to pay someone back, right? They've hurt us. Well, yeah, I'll forgive, but I want to take a little time and just kind of make you suffer. I just want to make you hurt enough, you know, give them the silent treatment, uh, maybe spread a few rumors about them, etc., etc. That is taking revenge into your own hands, and that is the sin. Jesus says, let go of the debt. Let go of revenge. Trust that to God. He's far better avenged than you are, by the way. <laughs> let him deal with the person and let go of it. And then thirdly, pursue goodness. Pursue love. Decide, I will pursue love with this person in whatever way I can. Now, if, again, if they haven't repented, maybe, maybe love is going to be holding them accountable in a kind, gentle, loving way. Love may look like a lot of things, but if you've truly forgiven, you will seek to pursue love with that person in whatever way God leads you to. We are to forgive if they repent or not. But true reconciliation will happen if they repent. And let me say that forgiveness doesn't mean that the hurt will be totally gone. It doesn't mean when you think about that person, you won't feel some hurt. Often we think that, don't we? We think, well, it still hurts when I think about what they did to me, so therefore I must not have forgiven. I don't think that's true. The fact the hurt's there just means you're human. <laughs> the fact you've for, if you've forgiven, though, you will let go of any payback, and you will want restoration, and you will pursue love in whatever way God leads you to. So that's what forgiveness is, and he says, forgive if they repent. So the question then is, what is repentance? <laughs> what does it mean for me to repent and for, that, for you to repent back? Well, repentance, I think in this passage, we can derive four parts to that, four steps. It says, notice... Um, Verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So what does repentance look like? First of all, it says, if he comes back to you. It means if he turns to you. 
that means, first of all, he's got to be turning from his sin. Okay? So the first step in repentance is turning away from the sin, to stop doing it. Secondly, it's turning to you, the person he sinned against. So the second step is to try to make it right. In true repentance, it always has to include trying to make it right. Then thirdly, it says, if he comes and says to you, I repent. Now implied in that is that he is admitting that he sinned. He's willing to say, yes, I sinned, period. Oswald Chambers in his book, In My Utmost for His Highest, says this, Repentance always brings a man to this point. I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work is when a man says that and means it. Anything less than this is a remorse for having made blunders. The reflex action of disgust at himself. You see, repentance doesn't mean you can say, and you've probably had apologies like this, well, I'm really sorry that you feel like I hurt you. I'm really sorry that you seem to be bothered by what I did. That's not repentance. Repentance is, I sinned against you and I am sorry. And the final step is when he says, I repent, I believe what he's saying there is he's committing himself to do what's right. To make it right with you, but also to no longer do the sin. I'm committing myself to turn away from that and to do what is right. But notice what Jesus says. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back and says this, forgive him. Jesus is saying our forgiveness should be unlimited. That's hard, isn't it? There's something about us that says, well, okay, you blew it, but I'll, I'll forgive you this one time, but don't let it happen again. Well, maybe we'll forgive twice, but three times, no way. And Jesus is not saying if he, if he sins against you seven times, forgive him, but the eighth time you don't have to. Seven times in Scripture is the number of completeness. He's saying, however many times, your forgiveness must be unlimited. He's saying in the body of Christ, we should relate to one another in a way in which our forgiveness is just part of how we relate. And you know what? That seems pretty impossible, doesn't it? That's the exact response of the disciples. Listen to them in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> Whoa! You're kidding! To forgive like that? We need more faith, God. We don't have enough. And Jesus goes on in the next few verses to encourage them in that in one way, but also to clear up two misconceptions in what they're saying. The first misconception is that somehow we need more faith, a greater quantity of faith to be able to forgive one another. But somehow it just takes more. Leon Morris says, The apostles want more faith. Jesus' answer turns them from the thought of a less and a more in faith to that of its genuineness. 
If there is real faith, then effects follow. It is not so much great faith in God that's required as faith in a great God. Listen to what he says, verse 6. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. He says, You don't need more faith. You just need a tiny amount of genuine faith. The real thing. As small as a mustard seed. And he uses this picture of a mulberry tree. The rabbis of Jesus' day had a saying that a mulberry tree could not be uprooted for 600 years because the roots go so deep. And Jesus is saying, if you have any faith at all, true faith in God, then the deepest resentment and hurt that you have rooted in your life can be uprooted and thrown clear into the sea. It doesn't mean the hurt is gone. But it's planted in the sea, he says. Can something be rooted in the sea? No. And I think what he's saying is that your deepest resentment, if you have any faith in God, is put in a place where it can't take root any longer. If you'll just turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I am trusting you. Yes, I'm hurting. This person hurt me. But I will trust you to deal with my heart and my pain I am entrusting my soul to you, and I am entrusting that person to you. You will deal with them. I don't have to. Therefore, by faith, I'm trusting that you are taking care of me. And if we have the tiniest amount of faith, our resentment can be done away with, and we can forgive. It's true that forgiveness is not natural for us, and that's where the disciples are right. It does take faith. Because it's not natural for any of us to, to forgive. But it is natural for Him. And so when we trust Him and let Him do it, He will. Joyce Landorf in her book, Irregular People, says, Once I finally admitted to the Lord that there was no way that I could forgive my irregular person, He did what He has done on one or two other occasions in my life. He beautifully assured me that if I was obedient to Him, He the God of my salvation, would do the forgiving bit. He would do it through me. But I did have to make a choice. I could wallow and die in bitterness and watch as hatred shriveled up my soul's relationship with not only other people, but with God as well. Or I could choose to be a channel for God's forgiveness and stand back to watch an incredible miracle take place. I chose the latter, but it meant opening my life, becoming vulnerable, learning a new lesson in humility, and on blind faith, taking a giant step in trusting the Lord. He longs to forgive through us, if we'll only let go and trust it to Him. And then finally, these last four verses, Jesus clears up one other misconception of the disciples. Let me read these. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking for the, after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me, while I eat and drink, after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. 
We have only done our duty. You see, Jesus hears the words of the disciples. Wow, there is no way we can do this. This is extraordinary to forgive. And Jesus says, no, it's just part of following me. It's just the duty of a servant of mine. You see, we became servants of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. We have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We're simply his servants. And he says here that if you're a servant of his and your focus is on who you are, I'm an unworthy servant. You died for me. You are the Lord, not me. Then we begin to see that forgiving others is a natural part of just serving Him. It should be natural in the body of Christ, not something unusual where we say, okay, I'm going to work it up. This one time I'll forgive. It should characterize every relationship we have with one another. There should be a constant repentance and forgiveness that goes on in the body of Christ. And that allows us to come together and be a body that's growing and being healed and becoming Christ-like as we learn to love each other despite our sins, despite the hurts, despite the struggles. Sin is inevitable in the body, Jesus says. But we can learn to deal with it in a way that can bring life and forgiveness And where you to me and I to you can be a picture of God's forgiving, gentle, kind love. What a privilege. This summer I went back and visited a church that I'd pastored at for three years. And when I first got to that church, I was in a counseling situation with a woman who I said some things, confronted her about some things, not in a as I look back, a particularly loving way. She became very angry, left, slandered me in the community and other churches in town. It was a very painful thing. This summer, I went back to that church to visit. And at a gathering, she walked up to me. She said, I just want you to know how sorry I am for how I sinned against you. And I was able to apologize to her and tell her how sorry I was for my sins against her. And we embraced. And I'll tell you, that was the highlight of my entire summer. And I had a good summer. But there is such joy in forgiving and in experiencing repentance and forgiveness with one another. Don't wait six years. You may very well have someone on your heart right now this moment, that you realize you need to forgive or that you need to repent in front of. Let me exhort you, don't let it wait. Don't let that divide the body of Christ because every time we do, it hurts the entire body. Let's be a healing, forgiving community together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your forgiveness of us. How petty we are, how selfish, how unforgiving. Oh, Lord, we repent. Help us to repent, to turn from that, to embrace one another with forgiveness and love. And may this be a week in which relationships are healed and the touch of your Spirit 
brings healing to many relationships. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our forgiving and kind Lord. Amen.